Hey, Odin, uh, thank you for coming in. You have just an amazing background, uh, you know, uh, academic accomplishment, research accomplishment, definitely leadership accomplishment, strategy accomplishment. And now you've got this really novel fusion uh, work that you're doing that could really be the forerunner of really commercial small uh, fusion systems that could be deployed anywhere. So just, just amazing. Thank you for coming in and sharing all of your insights with thank, our audience. Thank you. Thank you for inviting. So that I, my audience is largely, and, and literally, I just did an analysis uh, yesterday over the last 365 days, so over the last year, to see what the top five roles were in my audience who, who look at my interviews and my posts and things like that. And it's this, it's founder of companies, one, number two, CEO companies, three is uh, co-founder of companies, number four is presidents, and number five is board of directors. And then after that would be things like investors, <laughs> Or, or, or corporate leaders and, and big companies and things like that. And then maybe professors and, and uh, engineers, but it's really all of these sort of business uh, focused people. So it, and a lot of these business people have tech backgrounds, right? So mm -hmm. they would understand and appreciate what you're doing. So, but they're always curious. You have this great, amazing history. What were those two or three inflection points that made you this wonderful leader that you are today, this visionary, uh, this innovator, and it could have been something that when you were like three or five, it could have been something in your family or, um, uh, you know, pivotal points yeah. in your career. What were those magic moments that made you, Odin? I, uh, first of all, you're saying it in a way that, okay, I need need to live up to what you just said. So let's let's hope that it's all true. But um, I, I think a few things, and it's actually from, some of it is obviously from, from childhood, um I actually live in a in a moshav in a I used to grow up in a in moshav which is an agricultural small village in Israel and uh, when you grow in that uh, area uh, you work the land and uh, there's a lot of things that you do in order to to make sure that you get enough uh, you know oranges and things like that uh, so so you need to have to be a hard working uh, person on the one hand wake up in the morning and go to work and uh, and work in the field um and there's a lot of responsibility that you have so so from young age i uh, used to have a drive a tractor with many many carts behind me full of oranges and take them by myself to uh, uh, to the storage area and uh, for the distribution etc so a lot of that kind of things have happened since a very young age uh, and even before that, uh, I lived uh, in the U.S. for for three years during the end of seventies and the beginning of eighties, and uh, I grew up in a house where my father is an engineer. Uh, a lot of technology was in the house. Uh, Scientific American was on the table always in English version, so I needed to look at it and read and popular science and things like that. So I was very much intrigued. And one of the series at the time was uh, Cosmos. You probably, you may remember, you know, Carl Sagan with the uh, Cosmos and looking at the stars. And physics was something that I fell in love with uh, at a very uh, young age. And I think it, it propelled a lot of what I decided to, to study and then eventually what I'm doing today. And, uh, you know, the, the, one of the things that I was amazed to see was the Columbia, the, the first shuttle going up. 
in uh, it was in 1981 I think or in the uh, the takeoff there uh, I was there connected to the TV watching uh, technology go to space it was just amazing um, and and that I think kind of embedded into me the the need to go into technology and um, that was through a younger age and uh, the first uh, Atari 800 was was my computer, you know, basic uh, programming, doing Pac-Man and things like that. So it was a lot of fun at those uh, years. So it also shows uh, how young I am. Uh, so basically, that's where it started. And we can continue to the other stages of uh, my career. I mean, I can really relate to this. I mean, I come from an agricultural background too. So it makes you humble because you have to really work really hard and, and the conditions are, 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 you know, you have to have resilience and uh, it definitely isn't uh, easy work when you work in agriculture. And so you you got this background in agriculture, like you say, you know, driving tractors and uh, doing oranges and things like that. So that'll, that'll um, give you resilience and the ability to work hard and endure and so on. And then, as you indicated, uh, you know, your father was an engineer and you, 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 it gave you an appreciation of, of science and technology and what we call translational research, the ability to take research and really make effective solutions, because that's what engineers do. And then, mm -hmm. you know, you, you had an Atari, so you, you did some programming and things like that. So it showed that, you know, you're always looking, you know, pushing the boundaries. And you saw this, you know, the shuttle go up, and that was really exciting for you. And then you you decided to go into electrical engineering, right? Because it's very practical. And in fact, engineering, I would say out of, outside of engineering physics, which is really meant to go into research, I would say, the most math, the mathematically oriented engineering um, um, degree to get is in electrical engineering. I think engineering physics has more math, but the second mm -hmm. one is electrical engineering. And you uh, graduated at cum laude in electrical engineering from Technion, which is one of the best schools in the world, right? In fact, uh, there was a study by PitchBook of the top 100 universities which graduate most founders of companies. And out of the top 20, 18 were American, uh, but two were Israeli, and Technion, I believe, was one, one of the yeah. top 20, right? <laughs> Um, which is amazing when you consider that Israel has a population about eight to nine million. So from a per capita standpoint, just, uh, you know, like known as the startup nation, this amazing uh, kind of talent. But you not only went to the top school, but then you graduated cum laude and in electrical engineering, which is really, really difficult. So, I, yeah, when... So I enjoyed studying, which is funny to say. Maybe studying electrical engineering is not wasn't easy, but it was a lot of it, it was a lot of fun as well, and and I I enjoyed it because it combined you know the the ideas and combined the the interest in the high end technology. I have to say that at the time I I enjoyed more of the computer stuff and three D sensing and things like that not the high energy electrical stuff, which I'm truly embedded today. Uh, those were the studies that you wanted, you know, just to finish the the the, the exams and, and move forward. So I did some RF stuff. I did a lot of other things in the in in those four uh, interesting years. 
Uh, and I also did some some extra studies in, in physics, which I very much enjoyed. Uh, so so yeah, it's and the Technion uh, is a great uh, institute to study. Uh, it's fun. My father also studied there. He studied uh, aeronautical engineer, one of the the first classes of aeronautical engineers in Israel. Uh, but the Technion is a very good institution, very hard uh, in the way it teaches, but it's very much connected to the industrial kind of, uh, uh, to, to the industry at large and to the practical uh, um, life of what an engineer eventually needs to do and how you bring in academic studies and combine and connect it to real life, to bring solutions, as you said. And because eventually you want to not stay, at least I didn't want to stay in the academic uh, realm, but actually move and do stuff and, and make change and, and create. That was a lot of fun. Um, but it took me quite a few years after that to return to it uh, through a different career and then return after many years uh, into an entrepreneurial kind of uh, uh, way of life now. You know, I mean, Jeff Bezos is the same, right? He, he he ended up with an engineering degree, but he also graduated cum laude and also one of the top schools in the world. So you're in rarefied company, right? Because Technion is definitely one of the top schools. Electrical engineering is one of the top and most difficult engineering disciplines, and you graduated cum laude. So that makes you in the elite, you know, top, you know, a fraction of a percent kind of idea in the world today, right? And you then, and so I got just to focus a little bit on your education and then and then maybe a little bit of your military work and then get into this uh, fusion uh, company. But it's, it's such an outstanding background. You get an MBA from Harvard Kennedy School. Now Harvard's, you know, again, ranked in amongst the tops in the world. And you spent a year as a visiting fellow at MIT and Sloan School. So MIT and Harvard, I mean, that's pretty good. Technion, Harvard, MIT. Talk about yeah. well, I love Boston. <laughs> I love Boston area. Yeah, uh, am, am I? Well, Harvard was was Kennedy School. Literally, was moving out from looking at the world through a periscope to looking at the world uh, on on a global scale, and looking at uh, how economics at scale and security, global security, national security of different. Uh, countries and how a superpower like America looks at uh, the globe and you always see that energy is at the core and center of these things so that was amazing but also the Kennedy School itself was an amazing opportunity to meet uh, very many uh, students from all around the globe get many connections and really see uh, um, and learn from others a lot from the students as well as the professors. And uh, the way of studying there is, is very good in the sense that open discussions and a lot of uh, ideas that you can discuss uh, between each other as well as uh, through the studies themselves. Uh, and I enjoy that uh, very much. I think one of the most important things that I learned there was the, the active listening part. We sometimes tend to be active while we listen to think already about the answer instead of thinking about what we would like to ask the person discussing or talking what would be the next interesting question so I can learn more instead of be the one saying and active listening is is, is kind of a superpower when you, you lead as well so I think that was a good 
lesson and, and a, a, a time for for training in that and getting, gaining experience to to really actively listen to around the globe issues and people and get their perspective on different things. Uh, so that was that was a great experience. It was a wonderful year. Uh, then at, at Harvard, um, challenging but very wonderful. Um, after many many days in which I uh, wasn't at home, suddenly I was the one taking the kids to school and to the kindergarten, and then taking a bus to Harvard and enjoying. Doesn't matter what the rain uh, or snow. Truly enjoyed uh, that uh, that year. Uh, and then Sloan, well, you got to return again. I mean, once you love that place, you, you want to return again. And I had the chance, an opportunity, after uh, running uh, as a CEO of one of a uh, smaller company back in Boston, uh, really go and do a year at Sloan, uh, doing a visiting fellow. Uh, in uh, Sloan, there's a program, a special program that you can pick and choose whatever you want. And I mainly focused on entrepreneurship, obviously, and uh, things like that. Uh, and it was, again, a, a very good year in which I honed, I think, my my capability on a different scale or, or in a different area, which is more of the um, uh, business side, entrepreneurial side, strategically how you, you will build something like that and how to create a startup and, and run a company it was very, very interesting and uh, increased my, my understanding of how to do the my next stage of, of what I want to do in life. So, you know, it's interesting. You, you, you get a global perspective from a superpower at Harvard, but also you, you gain a skill of active listening because there's so much more you can learn if you take the time to attune to the people that you're interfacing with. And then at MIT, you get this sort of very practical applied approach in management, but also on the tech side, because MIT is a top tier tech school as well. And then adding that to the electrical engineering background, but you end up um, with the Israeli Defense Force for 30 years, and you were the head of legal and uh, strategic policy team with the idea of planning to, uh, uh, to, uh, directorate. And then you also became head of the C Division, responsible naval operation training and doctrine for the Israeli Navy, commander of the submarine force, uh, other key operational roles, um, research fellow at the Research Center for Mar Maritime Policy and Strategy and chairman of the Dolphin Association of Veterans uh, Submariners. And you ended up with a, as a rear admiral, which is, again, quite remarkable from a leadership standpoint because it combines all of these different elements. And just as a perspective, um, because the audience may not know what a rank uh, where a rear admiral sits. So a lot of people may think of, you know, like one, two, three star, four star generals in the U.S., what is a rear admiral? Is it one or two stars? A, a Navy rear admiral is kind of a two star. It's one below the the commander of the Navy, and that's the rank. Um, and it's at the end of my my career, which I uh, ended and went out uh, practically to start something new. Um, you know, I studied engineering as a young officer uh, back then in the Technion. Uh, and basically went into command positions and leadership positions, which which is basically, I would say, what is my uh, profession. Uh, it's, it's leadership and command. And um, also at Harvard, one of the courses or some of the courses were all about management and leadership, uh, which uh, to, to increase the capability there, which which were very good. 
and and now it's true it's it's kind of a combination it's it's a great combination to get all of those things together and i i hope i have all you know the necessary skills uh to do it right uh and and you know we, we all make mistakes while we do these things if you don't do anything you don't make mistakes so i hope just to make as little as possible uh so the success will be better um and it's it's an interesting journey i agree <laughs> Yeah, it's a fascinating background. It really sets you up for your current role. So how did you get involved with this fusion energy company? Can you tell us the narrative of the story of how that came about? Because your background is a perfect fit. Now, how did that come about? So I, I think that, you know, when, when you come on submarines, some of the things that you have in your mind is, is basically energy is your lifeline. Uh, everything you do depends on the amount of energy that you have. And if the energy is not there, you, you might not come back. And so it's part of you. you uh, personally, you have a personal connection to every electron in the battery in a sense. But also energy is something that is super critical for the development of a country, for the development of global security. And from that kind of thinking, I understand that prosperity and life it's on top of energy. For clean water, you need energy today. For food, you want water, you need energy. Uh, to live in certain places without energy, you will either freeze or fry. You need energy for almost everything we, we do in life. And when I finally did retire after a 30-year career, I analyzed, okay, what are the big challenges that are needed to be solved in the globe? What could be... Uh, the most important things. And, and you see that, okay, scarcity of food could be something like that, water and food. Uh, inhabitable lands or, or habitable areas, where can you live? Uh, especially when we see climate uh, playing around with us and climate crisis arriving, where can you live fine and, and well? And then energy also as, as becoming scarce and creating problems. Uh, and so I said, okay, so if I take all of these, where can I make an impact? And I thought that at the core of these things is energy. If you solve energy, you create abundant source of energy and it's distributed, then you solve most of the other problems. And you also reduce some of the biggest, I would say, tensions in the globe. So if I could, you know, add a push an inch, help a little bit in solving some of that, it would be something worth waking up in the morning to do. Uh, after 30 years of some national security stuff, I was very happy to go on something different and I was looking for something like that. And it also combined you know, my, my love for physics and engineering and uh, my leadership. So I said, okay, let's, let's see how we can do that. And also take advantage of, I think, one of the strengths of, of Israel, which is, as you said, you know, it's called Startup Nation, but only recently in the last seven years, I would say, I live it and, and I really feel it. And okay, so let's take that kind of energy within the, the Israeli entrepreneurship society and get that honed into solving this and try to, to push this further. And that was my, the, the next challenge that I decided to choose. So just for the benefit of the audience, they may not understand the difference between fission reactors. And in fact, now fission uh, nuclear reactors are good going into more smaller portable ones. There's molten salt, 
other means that are safer. And um, for example, Bill Gates is it's behind uh, you know Terra Power and there are sort of uh, mm -hmm. different kinds of of uh, uh, nuclear reactors. And because of all of this pollution and climate concerns, people are reinvestigating now safe nuclear energy the, the, on the fission side. So can you can you detail what fission is versus what fusion is and why you think, or in fact, not you think, I, the world believes fusion is better. Yeah. You can solve the engineering yeah. problems with fusion. So can, can you explain fission versus fusion? Yeah, sure. So, so fission and fusion have been known you know, since since the '40s, we've been trying to harness uh, both, and fission has been uh, sold uh, uh, faster, obviously. So fission is taking the heavy ions or the heavy elements like uranium and breaking it apart, getting the energy out, uh, and that's something that you know uranium breaks apart in uh, uh, naturally, and what you actually spend is energy. To cool it, to control it, to make sure that it does, there's no meltdown and and no kind of reaction that uh, creates uh, heating uh, too far and fast heating, etc. And so that's something that is controlled. And today, uh, nuclear reactors, nuclear energy plants are using fission power plants based on uranium that breaks apart naturally, and you have to control it, cool it, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It's super clean. It doesn't have any uh, carbon emission. It's net zero in that sense. But it has radioactive uh, residual from the fuel. And it also has uh, the potential for proliferation of uh, nuclear weapons. And therefore, it's very much controlled and very difficult to actually distribute uh, around. And so that's part of uh, the energy. Uh, in the beginning, when, when people said, okay, we'll have everything, everyone will have nuclear power and it will be clean and, and will be abundant and through fission, but that hasn't been uh, done fully. And it's super expensive, basically because of the strict rules for safety and, and uh, what I just discussed. And so that's, that's fission. And fusion is actually the opposite. It's taking the light elements like hydrogen, and it's actually the, the, the most abundant source of energy in the universe. That's the source of energy in the universe, which is fusion. And it's fusing the lighter elements, like two light uh, elements like hydrogen, into a heavier one. And, and it creates, for example, with hydrogen, you create helium, which is the next element in the, in the table. Uh, and then a lot of energy comes out. And the energy is coming out and being absorbed. It's uh, fast neutrons that are being absorbed. And that energy can be then translated into steam, steam turbines and energy, electricity, etc. That's the same path as fission. The main difference is in order to create fusion, which doesn't happen naturally, it only happens naturally in the center of stars or in supernova explosions. What does happen in, in what you need to do is to create those conditions. And those conditions are very hot and very dense conditions of atoms that are in plasma state, very, very energetic. Ions and electrons are running freely, very fast, and then colliding. To get those conditions on Earth here, very difficult. And uh, in many cases, we make those uh, conditions, but we get a little bit of energy out, not a lot of energy. So basically, for the last 80 years, I would say, we're, we're, we're trying and, and, and getting closer. And we can discuss some of the great experiments recently, but we're getting closer there. 
but still not, and not enough energy coming out of the process than the energy needed to sustain it or to create it. Because when to, for fusion, for these two hydrogens to collide and really fuse, you need over 100 million degrees. And for that, you need a lot of energy to heat it and also to hold it. 100 million degrees is not something that you can hold in a cup. You need to hold it in kind of a, a, a container. Basically, it's a, a pressure cooker built of, of magnets. And that's basically the best uh, way to hold it, if you need to hold it. Uh, there are other uh, ways, technically, uh, uh, technology-wise, you can do uh, experiments with the uh, uh, lasers. And, and lasers could also uh, implode or uh, basically uh, uh, heat and, and pressure and, and press uh, a small amount of deuterium tritium or, or hydrogen, heavy hydrogen, into those conditions as well, but that would be a very, very short amount of time, a very short pulse that uh, can create that. Um, and that's actually some of the experiments that we've seen in, in Livermore in, in California that have had uh, very interesting successes. But the, the main uh, path is those magnetic pressure cookers, I would say. And there's been news items, maybe you can mention some of the recent news items that have created a lot of excitement in the uh, energy community. One is in from Europe and the other is at Lawrence Livermore, as you mentioned, and why it's created some excitement. And then we'll get into why you're different and better. But first of all, <laughs> okay. let's, let's look at the state of the art right now and why people are excited. Yeah. Yeah. So, so as we said in Livermore, for example, we decided we said the, the lasers. So they have the biggest facility for lasers. They have 192, the strongest lasers in the world right now, and and they have managed to do a few tests in which they implode in a sense a very small, like half a centimeter, five millimeter uh, radii of of a uh, of a sphere of deuterium tritium, and then it implodes with very energetic lasers. What they managed to do is fire the lasers, put two megajoules in and get three megajoules out, even more than three megajoules out. So they got more energy out than the energy they put with the lasers. So that's amazing. And that's a, that's a, they, they managed to do it for three times in the last uh, two years. And uh, the, it's the first time that it's uh, been done that way. Uh, in lasers or in any other uh, fusion system or machine. Uh, the problem in that is that to fire the lasers, you need much more in orders of magnitude more than what they receive. So it's still not more energy than you use, but it does show uh, the important thing that it's possible. Uh, there are ways to go and there's still uh, a path to to uh, to finish. But it's 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 going the right way. So that was an incredible breakthrough, I think, for the entire fusion community. Uh, and you can see, uh, the, but the main, I would say, the main uh, approach, which is magnetic confinement within those magnetic pressure cookers, uh, there are two approaches. There's the accelerator approach, uh, which uses magnets from the outside to control. And there are tokamaks, which use magnets from the outside, but also uses a current within the plasma to hold the plasma within inside, not to touch the walls, 100 million degrees. You don't want it to touch the walls. And so that's how you do it. And the biggest uh, tokamak being built on an international 
project, which is uh, the ITER project in the south of France, um, it's costing a lot, but it's an international endeavor. It's the biggest experiment of humanity up till now. I think basically because it's the biggest problem that humanity is trying to solve. And I, you know, in the community of fusion and, and physicists, uh, people know it, but not realizing it that how important it is to to try and solve it, and how much money and, and uh, uh, effort is being done on an international scale for this, with really a work from all the way from Japan to the U.S., everything in between, working together to try and solve it. And would you say using these existing techniques now they consider it more of an engineering problem? And they will see commercial nuclear um, fusion uh, energy reactors that can be commercialized uh, or usable, uh, let's say by 2040, perhaps, or 2050. I think that those are reasonable dates for these uh, very large uh, you know, fusion reactors, right? Where they can be used. Yes. I think that's, that's the basic timeline that we see for those big machines. Uh, and and I think it's it could be it should be reasonable timing. I think it's uh, what's happening today, and and you're saying that it and, and you're saying it right. I, it's more of an engineering thing because the physics is known, but it's known for many many years. So so the problem was always the engineering side of it. How do you and when you increase the energy and you increase the different parameters of of the plasma and for, for the fusion reactors, you met different new kind of problems within the physics and, and, and knowledge has been gained really tremendously in the last 80 years. One of the interesting things that is happening specifically or you know, more in the last decade or maybe five years is that new technologies today enabling things that couldn't have been done in the 70s, 80s, 90s, and even in the 2000s. And uh, some of that is, first of all, the computer, the, the, the powers of the computer enabling today, by far, simulations that are much stronger, enabling it to look at the different conditions of particles and plasma and the way they, they react to different fields and things like that. So powerful simulations are today enabling to test, check, and then... Uh, engineer better topologies of magnets and of reactors, etc. The other thing that you can see is uh, power electronics. Some of the issues here is to very efficiently transfer energy from your power supply or capacitor banks into plasma. That transfer of energy, if it's not efficient and it's not controlled, you will not get commercialized fusion power plant working. And efficiency, it's all about efficiency in this process. And today, power electronics is much better, much stronger due to uh, a lot of development for uh, electric trains, electric vehicles, uh, windmills, and these kind of, of uh, different uh, semiconductor power supplies that are now uh, controlling uh, big uh, power supplies and also advancement in very strong capacitors. All of those are combined to very powerful power supplies. They are very much uh, enabling new kinds of heating and new kinds of control of magnets. And the last one I would say is, is the high temperature superconductors. There's a lot of discussion today about these in, in the industry of, of fusion. Those uh, high temperature superconductors, you know, it's not high temperature. It's, it's just instead of being four Kelvin, 
it's around 30 Kelvin. It's still very cold. I wouldn't put my finger there, but that's it's it's high temperature superconductors that are much more flexible in the way they behave um, with changing of, of uh, currents within them and enabling uh, stronger, more flexible magnets to become flexible in the way you can build them, but also very strong magnetic fields that are necessary to hold those kind of pressures of, of plasma, of, of fusion conditions. So those kind of technologies are today enabling things that couldn't have been done before and enabling to, to I think, push the boundaries of the engineering of the solution. So let me kind of reflect on what you're saying then. Um, you know, there's a lot of progress in uh, high-performance computers, supercomputers. In fact, Al Capitan will go online in 2024, it's an exascale supercomputer. That means it could do a billion, billion operations per second. And so there's this whole, and, and I believe myself that Zeta scale is not gonna be 15 years out. I think we're gonna get Zeta scale within 10 years, which is a trillion billion operations per second, which means you can do much uh, better modeling and simulations and, and do better design. You also mentioned, and I'm going to add to that, uh, quantum computing, um, because there's these hybrid systems mm -hmm. that are marrying quantum computing together with uh, supercomputing and exascale supercomputing. And then I want to add to that mm -hmm. uh, the work of AI, for example, DeepMind and some of the machine learning algorithms are now being applied to opti do optimization. So the confluence of supercomputers, exascale, quantum computers, and uh, AI and improving in, in, on the optimization side. I think that's really fascinating. And then you're, you're talking about power semiconductors and that whole area of much more better at doing this kind of energy transfer. Philip Wong uh, at Stanford is a leader in semiconductor research. I think, you know, so some of that application and the great strides that are being uh, made in um, that area and you talk about superconductors and they're, and they're becoming much uh, easier to work with, uh, higher temperatures. In fact, there's this kind of uh, big barrier of, you know, and you see these announcements sometimes, hey, we, we think we got room temperature superconducting and then it ends up it's not right, but it's not true. But there's always this sort of uh, massive interest, right? Of higher temperature superconducting yeah. and so on, right? So, um, and, but there's really fascinating work being done in that area. And if you get the confluence of all of these areas, you're, you're going to be the beneficiary as well. So tell, tell the audience how you're different. <laughs> so really, we're, we're actually standing on the shoulders of 80 years. So we're not, you know, when I was young back there in the, in the fields with the orange trees, uh, some of the sprinklers would be stuck and the water wouldn't come out and, to open them, I would stand on the shoulders of my father and then go with my hand up and, and try to open the sprinkler and get, you know, water dripping down and all the way through me to my father to the ground. But And, and so we're really the same thing. We are standing on shoulders of the previous generations with all the knowledge and technology and experimental uh, and knowledge and, and results that have been done and really reaching out uh, using the top technology today to try and solve it. So, and I would say humbly that 
we haven't solved it yet, but we are in a path which is a bit different than combining some things that I think are essential for the for, for the full uh, system. Uh, what we have looked at uh, through all the, the studies and experiments uh, is one of the key parameters. So anti-tau are the three parameters of, of plasma uh, for fusion. N is the density, T is the temperature, and tau is the time in which we're holding the plasma in those conditions. And those three knobs are the ones you are using in order to get to fusion conditions and, and keep the fusion or create enough energy coming out. And it very much depends on density. The higher the density, the higher the N, and the higher the density, the more collisions you have. That's It's a simple thing. You know, if we have a billiard table and one ball there and we throw a ball, it takes a long time until one ball hits. But if we have 10 balls, and we throw 10 balls, it's 100 times faster. It goes by the square of that. So the rate of collisions is much higher, meaning the output efficiency will be higher. The real problem was always to heat denser plasma. The more particles you have, the denser the plasma, it's very difficult to heat it. And what we've looked at is how can we increase density or use higher density plasma, but efficiently, enable us to heat uh, that kind of density using uh, the new technologies that exist today. And that's where the power electronics come in. And that's where the special magnetic topologies uh, play uh, around. And what we found is, is a, a way to use those two magnetic uh, topologies of tokamaks and stellarators and actually try to, to find the, the right combination, I would say, in a sense, uh, and it's a dynamically stabilized torus, and it's dynamic, and we're using the power electronics in that sense to really hold it, and in short pulses, uh, create a very strong energy transfer into into uh, dense plasma. And one of the other things that we've found is that that kind of technology actually likes to be smaller. So it works more efficiently uh, when it's smaller. Uh, if you if you look at the magnetic fields, to create the magnetic fields in a very large volume takes a lot of energy. The same strength of magnetic field in a smaller volume takes much less energy. And that's part of the efficiency we are looking for. And um, that's basically, I would say, in a nutshell, uh, the difference in which we're going for higher density, very quick heating, very strong and quick heating, Combining the two in a dynamically stabilized torus or a dynamically stabilized pressure cooker in which everything is held uh, for those pulses. Um, and that's basically the path uh, up so till now. Yeah. Excuse me, if you can give the audience sort of a, um, a sense of the size. I mean, when you see the photographs of what's happening in France, it's huge, it's huge, right? And, yes. and so can, can you give us a, a sense of the size comparison and why that's more practical? Why yeah, so more eventually, practical? yeah, so the small, the, there are challenges when you go small, obviously, and there are challenges when you're very big. Um, the, the size of what's happening in ether is and um, is a result of the physics and the way a tokamak needs to work. And it's very low density and very long time, and it needs to have a, a very high, a large volume in order to create more energy out. Uh, here, 
at a thousand times higher density, we can make it much smaller. And we're looking at something that is kind of a shipping container size. It's 10 to 20 megawatt power plant. We're talking about something which is much smaller than the regular power plants that you see, which are gigawatt kind of power plants. And so it's a hundred times less, although 20 megawatts will light up 10,000 homes. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite nice for a very, it's a small town or a large uh, neighborhood, uh, but it also enables practically to have distributed energy, uh, off-grid, micro-grid kind of distributed energy, which is, goes also with the trend of what's happening today with, with uh, electric grids. Uh, but also solves issue uh, of of energy scarcity in different areas, in different countries that don't have a very good electric grid or areas that don't have electric grid at all. And you can actually put something like this, 20 megawatt, connect it to a microgrid, light up the area and give energy to that area. So, And, and it has other very interesting kind of market utility uh, uh, solutions that it can uh, create and also the cost building something smaller is is less expensive and the other important thing is the development uh, uh, pace a smaller system enables to validate and experiment faster uh, we talked about supercomputers we discussed the simulation there is actually no simulation that can really give you the answer if something is going to work or not uh, in fusion uh, you have to to do experiments because there's no holistic one. There's the the the, um, the way plasma behaves is is waves as well as, as as particles and as well. It needs to experimentally validate it. And nature doesn't lie. You do experiment, you get the answer. You do stimulation, you kind of think you have the answer. Uh, so so this is very important. Doing many iterations, testing many times, changing things quickly on a smaller system is possible and, and less expensive. And so the process uh, is enabling us to, to run faster. Uh, we're already in, in, you know, many, many prototypes have been created and to upgrade the, the last prototype took us a couple of months to take it apart, build the whole uh, coils differently, uh, rebuild it, close it and start uh, pulsing again. So, so this kind of, of testing quickly is also super important. So I, I think that's it's a, it's a big difference and enabler. And I think when you see the, the private sector going in, the private sector pushing forward enables such, such progress. I mean, it's really fascinating, right? Your scale is different, which makes it cheaper and faster to iterate. Uh, it's, a, it's a simpler engineering problem in a sense when it's smaller because you can iterate so much faster. And it's through the iteration that you can solve these engineering problems. And so, and, and because it's smaller, it's cheaper. And so it's easy, more easily deployable. I mean, you could, you could take it anywhere. It could fit on the back of a truck, for example. You can put it in a ship, almost like a boat or something. Um, you can put, you can deploy it in different regions. It's like a flatbed truck, right? They're, they're pretty big, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Um, so it gives you this uh, deployability. So what milestones have you achieved so far? And what do you hope you achieve next year or by 2025? And let's say by 2027. 
So I think the most important uh, initial breakthroughs that we had was on the heating uh, and seeing that we have um, high energy coupling into uh, denser plasmas in the way we were pushing the energy in. And uh, through that, we said, okay, we have one knob. Okay, not everything is solved, but we have one knob. Now we have to go for the next stage. And in the last uh, couple of years, uh, we've been working on the different topologies or basically the last year was the most important, uh, working on topologies of the magnetic fields and doing the combination, creating the, the dynamic stabilization in which you push energy in and stabilize the system in those uh, uh, times of, of pulses. And uh, today, the, the prototype that is now uh, being tested is doing the integration between the two. So the fast heating, strong heating with the uh, very strong stabilization system, all of those are being combined now to show that the full concept is, is uh, in full uh, working mode and then gradually increase the energy uh, to, to break even, etc. So this is where we're at, uh, doing all the, you know, experimental diagnostics and measuring uh, all the x-ray uh, measurements and whatever is needed in order to test uh, the output uh, gradually and uh, so this is uh, where we're at super excited because of the the right now 2024 is expected to show the the real work uh, of the integration of the two things as i said and uh, immediately after that we'll be going uh, a notch higher in which we increase from a 20 megawatt kind of power supply to a 100 megawatt. And then later on, you said 26, 27 to about a 400 megawatt uh, power supply for the uh, pulse duration, which should give us the, you know, the full range of uh, going to break even energetically. Uh, we're very excited to push forward on that. And uh, we'll see. We, we, we we still have a lot to show and, and to, uh, you know, to um, prove to ourselves first and then uh, to the outside world. But uh, up till now, it seems that we're on the right path and hopefully we are. Now, it, maybe this puts you at the spot. Maybe it's impossible. Are you, are you able to say, you know, by 2030, we'll have more energy out than in? I, I would say this. <laughs> That's the plan. It's it's truly the plan by end of decade to have to show that it's it's possible to have more energy out than energy in 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 a working prototype. Uh, if everything works correctly, then it will happen. Uh, if we see surprises we haven't thought of, we'll have more engineering challenges. Okay, uh, and and then commercializing it will take uh, longer a little bit. Uh, obviously, the the move from a prototype to a commercial uh, system would take some time, but. Uh, I think by end of decade, hopefully we will show the breakthrough needed. And if not us, I, I'm, I think truly that fusion is going to, this is the decade of fusion. And we'll see breakthroughs, amazing breakthroughs from all the 40-something startups that exist today and all the um, projects, the huge projects uh, that are being out there. Uh, because they're pushed, you know, when, and I started saying this before, when, when private sector goes in, First of all, it means that they believe in something that's going to happen, but they are enabling. So when $6.2 billion are going into fusion market for the startups, this is an enabler that pushes across the board on different technologies right now. Not all startups are doing the same thing. Actually, we're doing different things. 
and and that's why I think we'll have a solution as humanity, not as anti-Tao, but as humanity, I think we, we'll have a solution sooner than later. And that's what I believe in and I hope. Um, and we'll see. I, I, we're pushing hard. And I know that you're somewhat in stealth too. This is kind of a competitive marketplace. You, you definitely have a unique vision that will put you ahead of other uh, people out there. And it definitely has a commercial kind of uh, theme to it. Uh, much, much more than some of the other ones that are out there, especially the big ones. The, I think the commercialization should be much faster, as you indicated, much more easily uh, deployable. And it's an engineering optimization problem as well, especially when you get further along, then it's just mm -hmm. optimizing what you have, right? Just making it more efficient. That, then, uh, then the question is, are you able to um, maybe publicly announce any partners or, or maybe you're too much in stealth yet? <laughs> Well, you know, some of the partners uh, on the academic side were doing some very interesting stuff with uh, Princeton University, with uh, Professor Egerman Coleman there on, on the side of the magnetic cores and uh, some of the simulations that they have there. Uh, so we're, we're having uh, a few different uh, simulation um, progress with, with Princeton University. Uh, we're doing some diagnostic uh, with a professor at MIT. And uh, and here in Israel, within uh, the ecosystem that has been built and the Ministry of Energy that has put uh, over 30 million shekel into the ecosystem, we're part of that uh, uh, institute that was created here in, uh, for fusion hot plasma and working with all the university, with Technion, obviously, on, on diagnostics and, and things like that, and uh, uh, with other uh, uh, leading universities here in Israel. And as well as as uh, investors that are very strong on the engineering side, for engineering side, on for example, Honda is, is an investor. We're very proud of bringing Honda, which was the first mobility company, to join the fusion uh, ecosystem, and and you know that's that's a very strong uh, engineering back. Once we go a little further, we have a lot of strength there uh, from one of the partners right now. So Honda is one of them. And, and a few others. So uh, we're super excited and there's a lot of opportunities. I'm, I'm a big believer in collaboration. I think this, this kind of challenge for humanity needs, needs a broad uh, look, but also very strong collaboration. We need to be open as much as we can. You know, these are private companies, but we need to be open in whatever we can collaborate about in order to be able to, to make this happen for humanity. So we are talking to... Some of the startups, some of the companies, definitely with the institutions, to see how we can push uh, our core issue, IP patents and things like that are ours, but everything around it, we should work together. And, and I think it, it's kind of happening and it will happen even more, I think, in the future and the near future. I mean, it's just fascinating. I mean, you're pioneering uh, in this commercialization of, of fusion. And it's it's more than just research. You're, you're doing practical elements uh, of it, right? So, and and the world should collaborate with you <laughs> because because once you commercialize it, then everybody can use it, right? Rather than just sort of some scientific experiment, you're you're trying to make it practical so that it could be deployed everywhere. I think it's just uh, wonderful where you're going with this work and your background. It certainly fits uh, all of this work going forward. Uh, I normally ask a question like, you know, what's the ideal 
state, let's say by 2030, but I think we already talked about you're gonna, you're gonna have, have a system that works and you're now just working on optimizing to, to make it more more commercializable. Yeah. So it's just a, increasing the commercialization of it because now you know it works. Yes. And and uh, you usually ask the question, where do you think it's going in the future? Well, you know, fusion is gonna be there in just a matter of time. And it has to be. A hundred years from now, it's gonna be in the more near term, right? So that's that's your future. Yeah. And you're combining all of these uh, confluence of all of these amazing technologies, right, uh, to do this. And you have an amazing team and and you're the ideal leader to lead it because of your background. So do you have any closing comments in the last few minutes uh, of this interview? Uh, first of all, I think it's, it's a, an exciting time and the challenges on a global scale are are, are serious and real. And energy is at the core and heart of, of most of the challenges. Uh, I think we need to come together and and work uh, as a globe on these things. Uh, and I think uh, technology will have to help in solving most of the problems, not all. Um, and really, uh, you know, we're moving, ending 2023. It has been very challenging recently here in Israel, but I think around the globe as well. And we're looking forward for uh, you know a happy new year, 2024, and uh, a very successful, more peaceful 2024 for everyone. Yeah, indeed, and then and quite a journey for you from driving a tractor, <laughs> applying with these uh, computer devices to uh, listening to your dad on the, on these engineering things and spending time in the U.S. and then. Uh, going to Technion, electrical engineering, and and then uh, MI, you know Harvard and MIT to your career in the Navy and and doing all this leadership to founding a leading uh, fusion energy company and basically putting your name into the stars of the greats and society or or adding to that that narrative. Just an amazing career and thank you, Odette, for coming in and sharing your experiences. I I just think it's wonderful what you're trying to do. So. Thank you so much. Thank you for for inviting me. I enjoyed it very much. Thank you for listening to the brand called You Videocast and Podcast, a platform that brings you knowledge, experience, and wisdom of hundreds of successful individuals from around the world. Do visit our website www.tbcy.in to watch and listen to the stories of many more individuals. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the brand called You.